In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, our Lord says, My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Your brother, largely lost on us and to our great shame, is the idea in concrete that the church is the family of God. Once you settle into a congregation and become a member of that congregation, you become a member of the body of Christ in that place. You become a brother in the family of God. It is a reality that our Lord would have us reminded of every single time we pray the Lord's Prayer. In fact, you cannot pray it without saying two all-important words. Our Father. It can never be my Father. It must always be our Father. And if He is our Father, then we are brothers one unto another. You might consider how awkward it would be to be up in heaven and recognize someone from Faith Lutheran Church and have to introduce yourself for the first time? (laughs) Might we take to heart this teaching of our Lord that our brothers right next to us in the pews are our eternal brothers? And I think from this angle too then you can see why a lack of forgiveness simply doesn't work in the kingdom of heaven. Are you going to hold something against your brother here on earth? Are you going to hold that same thing against your brother up in heaven? You can see how the kingdom of God is incompatible with unforgiveness. What is not in view are those outside of the church outside of the family of God. What is not in view are those false brothers who steal into the church only to subvert and pervert the gospel and doctrine of our God and Father. What is not in view are brothers who are in a state of impenitence, as the scriptures, the confessions, even the small catechism itself state the impenitent are not to receive forgiveness. What is also not in view are the temporal consequences of sins that sometimes necessarily accompany remediation or reconciliation. For example, if a church treasurer were to embezzle funds from the church, do we simply forgive him and put him back in charge of the money? If a pastor were to have an adulterous affair with members of the congregation, should we simply forgive him and put him back into the role of pastor? No, if you loan someone a great amount of money and they don't repay you, you might forgive that debt 
but you're not likely to write a check the very next day. What is in view is personal sins committed against you. That's where the laser focus of our Lord's attention falls. Indeed, it's inherent in Peter's own question in the larger context of Matthew 18 as well. Peter asks, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? It is often said that at that time, it would be gracious to forgive your brother up to three times. Peter probably submits that we should forgive our brothers up to seven times, expecting that Jesus will commend him for this gracious answer. No, Jesus does not commend him. Jesus says, I say to you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Our Lord does not have in mind that when our brother sins against us, we should pull out a flow chart, <laughs> jot down the sin. Since he sinned against me, I should go and tell him his fault that I might win my brother. If he doesn't hear me, I must go get one or two others that everything may be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. That'll require a separate column. And if he doesn't hear us, then I'll have to tell it to the church. That'll require an additional column. And then if he does finally repent, that'll require yet another column. I'll check that off so I can let him know when he's hit his seventh and final sin against me. No, indeed, our Lord's teaching simply assumes that we will overlook the vast majority of sins our brothers commit against us. Only those that are very serious in nature require serious treatment. Peter asks, how many times should I forgive? And Jesus responds, in effect, if it's your brother, infinitely. And he tells a two-part parable to this effect. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, but one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. None of the biblical scholars can agree on how much that is, but for people like you and me, it would be something like billions or trillions of dollars, simply impossible to repay. It might also raise a red flag in your mind how it is and that someone could get that far in debt. Don't you think after 100,000 or maybe a million or maybe 10 million, he would have stopped? But he didn't. There's a kind of insanity to this man's sin, and that is perhaps the first place in which we might relate to him. He goes on digging that hole deeper and deeper, and so do we. That is the insane nature of sin accumulating a debt, each one of us, that could never, ever be repaid. The king, far from being cruel, simply seeks to do the very thing you would seek to do, maybe have done in small claims court, 
get what he can out of the deal. So he decides to sell the man off with his wife and children into slavery that he might liquidate them and receive whatever recompense he can. But it's at that moment that the servant falls down before him, begging and pleading for mercy, stating that he would like time to to pay back everything. Of course, there's a foolishness in that. Who's going to believe that he could ever repay such a debt? Jesus tells us that the king is moved with pity, compassion, and he releases the man and forgives him all his debt. Now, from the man's perspective, that forgiveness costs nothing. It's simply written off. But again, if you loaned your friend $10,000 and he didn't repay it, and you had pity on him and forgave him the debt, who's paying? You are. And so too, this king absorbs the debt himself in order to forgive his servant. It is indeed Christ who absorbs our sins in order to declare his absolution. It is Christ who pays the cost. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God and that is what we are. Indeed, the Lord Jesus absorbs not only the bill of debt that belongs to you, he absorbs the bill of debt that belongs to each and every human being and does so in such a way that he becomes the debtor, the sinner. And there he pays the debt, not with gold or silver, but with his own blood pouring down the cross. He absorbs the debt that he might forgive us. Now imagine if you had come to confession and absolution. You had confessed all your sins. Let's say a lifetime of sins. Let's say you didn't leave a single one out. And you receive the forgiveness of God. And no sooner do you receive the full and free forgiveness of God You go outside and immediately remember that someone, your fellow servant, in fact, has sinned against you. What do you do? This is the part in Jesus' sermon where we ought to lose all sympathy for the debtor because he does something so ugly, so monstrous, I hope it would never enter our hearts or minds. Having just had his debt utterly forgiven, he goes out, finds somebody who owes him 100 denarii. Now, that's a substantial enough debt. It would, cost, it would take months to repay that. But what does this man do? With his heart utterly unchanged, utterly unmoved, he goes to his fellow servant and he seizes him treats him immediately how he himself had not been treated, violently and murderously grabs hold of this man. Before the man can even say anything, 
The unforgiving servant has his hands wrapped around his throat and is strangling him. Pay me what you owe. It is meant to be astonishingly ugly and repulsive. The man says, give me time and I will pay back everything that I owe. Does it sound familiar? It's the exact echo of what the unforgiving servant himself had just pleaded. No, the unforgiving servant will not release him, will not forgive his debt, but he throws him into prison. Outraged, rightfully, by this disgusting behavior, the fellow servants rush to tell the king what has been done. The king draws the unforgiving servant back in. What have you done? As I forgave your debt, should you not also have forgiven this man's debt, who is your fellow servant, which means also he is my servant, and where is he now? He's rotting in prison because you put him there. So the king did what was right and just and good. He threw that unforgiving servant into prison himself until he should repay the debt. What profound ugliness. What denial of the gospel of the forgiveness of sins could be more full, more complete, more anti Christ than this. And so there's no shame at all in our Lord's voice when he summarizes the parable in just this way. So also will my heavenly Father do to you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. It's a reality of which Jesus is not ashamed to speak. And by the way, it is interesting, is it not, that that's how Jesus' sermon ends. On a note of warning. On a note of law. It's the ending of his sermon to Peter, but it's also the ending of this entire section of teachings in Matthew 18. It's his final word on the subject matter. A lack of forgiveness is simply incompatible with the kingdom of God and his forgiveness of all our sins. How shall I end this sermon? Well, I know from years of pastoral practice that many Christians wrestle with wondering if they're forgiving enough or not. I'll simply submit to you that as you wrestle, know that you're wrestling against your own flesh. It's your own flesh that does not want to forgive. It's the new man in you who forgives freely. In that battle against your flesh, let the words of our Lord ring out clear and unmitigated. Those words are designed to put your flesh to death, that the new man in you might rise, be filled with life, be empowered to forgive.
From a certain vantage point, it is only God who forgives perfectly. It is only God who forgives and forgets. Even if we forgive, the forgetting doesn't happen, at least not this side of heaven. So wrestle on. As Jesus says, you must forgive your brother from your heart. Remember those words of the Old Testament that tell you where that forgiving heart comes from. In Jeremiah, that heart comes from the forgiveness of sins. That heart comes from God. It comes in the new covenant, according to Jeremiah. And that new covenant that Jesus gives us is the chalice of his blood. As you receive the chalice of his blood this morning, the forgiveness of sins is poured into you, body and soul. Let that forgiveness of sins create a clean and new heart within you. A heart that flows and overflows with the forgiveness of sins for others. But since a servant is not greater than his master, and Jesus sees fit to leave his hearers with that word of warning echoing in their ears, let me do the same for you. Unless you also forgive your brother from your heart, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.